Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Wednesday, February 14th. As we celebrate Valentine's Day, have you ever stopped to think about why we fall in love? We speak with Jim Davies, a professor from the Department of Cognitive Science at Carleton University, for details on the physiology and science behind this crazy little thing called love. We know there's a housing crisis and that Canada needs to build more affordable homes, but are we relying too much on the private sector? We talk about the concept of social housing and how it could be the answer to addressing the housing crisis with Shauna McKinnon, professor of urban and inner city studies at the University of Winnipeg. And finally, she's back from a whirlwind trip to the bottom of the planet. We catch up with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, to hear details of her most recent adventure to breathtaking Antarctica. Wednesday, February 14th happens to be Valentine's Day, so we're going to ask the question, how and why do we fall in love? What exactly is happening in our brains to create the feeling of love? Joining us to discuss the science behind it is Jim Davies, professor in the Department of Cognitive Science at Carleton University. Happy Valentine's Day and good morning to you, Jim. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Well, I think generally when we think about love, we think about our hearts. But uh, you're here to tell us it's a little bit different than that in our brains. So what is happening in our brains that create those feelings of love, Jim? Yeah, one of the reasons that we find love so fascinating is that it's a, um, at the brain level, it's a concoction of several different things happening at once. Like romantic love involves often lust and attachment and focus and drive and other kinds of love like that you might have for your dog or your child or uh, a close friend involves different mixes of these things. And, you know, even romantic love over time turns, like the, usually the lust and the focus turns down and the attachment and, uh, you know, feelings of pleasure increase. So it's it's a complex uh, cocktail of things in the brain, and uh, and I think that's why we're so fascinated with it. So there's there's scientific evidence behind love, then, like and a psychology behind being and falling in love, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, certainly there is. You know, there, and we can even tie it to particular neurotransmitters, which is a rare delight in psychology because usually things aren't that so straightforward. <laughs> but um, there's a, a neurotransmitter called oxytocin, and you can. Uh, increase someone's oxytocin with a nasal spray and when you do they have subjective feelings of it of like attachment to whatever you put in front of them so um it's it's really cool and that 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 is in dodge that's created in your own brain when you cuddle or make love or something like that what impact if any does love have on our mental health jim <clears throat> oh um so you know we are a social species and so um, and, and for the most part, a species that involves pair bonding. So, you know, marriages and long-term relationships. Uh, and so we're kind of wired for that. It's not to say that everyone is like that, but, um, you know, most people do have a, um, a very instinctive craving for this kind of thing. And having a, a love relationship um, is uh, often a, you know, important for people's happiness. So, you know, um, married people do tend to be happier. Um, of course, it's also that people who are happier are find it more easily to find a marriage partner. <laughs> but there, there does seem to be an effect of uh, being married makes you happier too. Uh, Jim, you talk a lot about visual thinking, and you use that in your research as well. Uh, how, does can visual thinking, you know, sort of lead you to a better love? Do you think? Um, maybe if you're creative about it. I don't really know any science about that, but um, you know, there are certainly strategies in long-term relationships. Um, that you can involve yourself with uh, to, you know, forestall things like boredom and getting frustrated and annoyed with your partner, things like gratitude and that kind of thing. They don't need to be particularly visual.
Let's uh, talk about something that was chronicled in the music world in the 80s, and that was Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love. Now that we've attributed uh, to our in our mind uh, love, and I know that addiction can come from, you know, neurons and, and uh, you know, in our heads. Can somebody be addicted to love? Is, is that a possibility? Mm-hmm. I have never heard of such a thing. Um, certainly there people can have sex addictions. Um, but love is, I mean, love takes time to form um, and, you know, to form like a bond and falling in love or whatever. It takes so much time. It's, it's kind of hard to imagine how one could get addicted to it as though they needed it, a hit every day of a brand new love or something like that. I mean, certainly people can get very, very attached to someone else and um, even have separation anxiety. But I don't think I don't think addiction researchers would call that an addiction. Okay, since it's Valentine's Day and you brought it up, we can be addicted to sex, but we can't be addicted to love? Yep, that's right. How I mean, so? It's easier, it's easier, well, I mean, addictions generally involve, um, like, whatever you're addicted to, whether it's cocaine or gambling or sex, it's usually something that you can get and appreciate fairly quickly. Um, but, like, you know, it's like buying a house. It takes so long that it you don't really build up a dependence by, like, buying a house every day. <laughs> Similarly, you can't fall in love with a different person, you know, three times a day or something like that. I think that time scale has something to do with the uh, fact that it's not an addictive property. Hmm. I think we have much more to talk about here because I think that <laughs> some people love to fall in love. Yeah, true. But, no, nevertheless, uh, thank you so much and happy Valentine's Day to you, Jim. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Happy Valentine's Day to all your listeners. Thank you. Jim Davies, professor in the Department of Cognitive Science at Carleton University. Okay, we know there's a housing crisis and that Canada needs to build more affordable homes, but are we relying too much on the private sector to do it? Joining us to talk about the impact social housing could have to address the housing crisis is Shauna McKinnon, professor and chair in the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. Good morning, professor. Thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can you define for us, just to begin, what social housing is? Sure. So social housing is essentially housing that's uh, created outside of the market. So there's no pr- uh, profit motive. So it's non-profit housing. So there's many different types of non-profit housing. And then it rents at, uh, so that people are paying um, rents geared to their income so that not, they're not paying more than 30% of their gross income. All right. So we break that down. And uh, what would this mean as far as in uh, real terms in far as far as a canadian city uh what would it look like shauna yeah so i mean it could look in very very different ways so, so people often when they hear social housing they think of housing uh you know from the past that maybe they see as dangerous places and kiddo wise but that that's sort of a, a myth so you know you could have uh mixed housing where you have a certain number of housing uh, units are renting at uh, market rates but a, a percentage of those are offered at um, rgi rates subsidized but subsidized by government so in a non-profit building so i mean it could be apartments it could be you know townhouses there's all sorts of different types of housing the the, the main piece is is that it's uh not for profit housing um and it rents uh, uh according to people's income Okay, so Shauna, in your article at theconversation.com, you say the private sector has failed Canadians. What exactly do you mean by that and, and what's behind it? Yeah, so I mean, you know, the private sector has a role to play in, in you know, housing uh, development, obviously. But I mean, it, it's really up to the government to look at how we address the housing needs of all uh 
all uh, the citizens. So, and the private sector simply doesn't work uh, to create housing for low-income people because it's you know it's in it to make a profit. I mean, and that's not a judgment. I mean, that's just the way it works in our society. So, it's not really able to, and quite frankly, not really interested in in, in creating housing for low-income uh, households. And so that's where governments need to step in and uh, invest in the kind of housing that I talk about in the article, uh, housing that is uh, not for profit housing so that people who are either houseless or uh, living in precarious housing conditions in in poor housing um, can have a you know a safe place to live and that provides you know a level of security for people so that they can participate in society like the rest of us okay so you lay this out Shauna and by the way speaking with Shauna McKinnon professor and chair in the Department of urban and inner city studies at the University of Winnipeg. You lay out that this is a solution, Shauna. You lay out that the privates don't want to do it because of the not-for-profit nature or not making that top dollar. So what are the main obstacles preventing governments from investing in social housing? So, you know, the, the, one of the big obstacles is, of course, it's expensive, right? And so, you know, if you look at it in the short term, um, there's that concern. Uh, we need housing fast, and it's much cheaper to just focus on the private sector to create that housing. But again, it's not creating the housing that we need, that we, we need most in terms of uh, housing people who are most vulnerable. And so there's that. Um, and then it's also the case that, you know, publicly people are calling on governments to invest in affordable housing. Uh, the loudest voices are, are particularly concerned about um, home ownership, um, uh, and so you know, there's a focus there, which again, it's, it's not a problem. I mean, we sh- we need to do that too, um, but it's not again addressing those in 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 low lowest uh, income households, and so you know, governments are listening to those calls, um, and so. You know, here we see, you know, daily, um, you know, images of people living on the streets and tents saying that they choose to do that because they can't find a safe place to live, you know, places where they can lock their doors, places that are in, in decent repair. And so that issue is growing and growing. Um, but I would argue that until um, the voting public starts to reach out to their, you know, their MPs, their MLAs, their uh, the councillors and say we need you know to focus some investment in this area. We likely aren't going to see a huge expansion, unfortunately, because you know politicians uh, essentially um, you know are looking for uh, you know are, are are looking for votes, and so they're going to go to where they hear the loudest cries. Shauna, you did research, obviously, for your article, again, in theconversation.com, and you looked at different places that maybe were using social housing successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for example, Finland. Can you give us some examples so that everybody can hear and, and sort of understand that concept and how it works well? Yeah, sure. And so Finland has a very high percentage of social housing, and it, so it's often looked at as a way, as an example, again, and that's not to say that they don't have private sector housing. They certainly do. A large percentage, most of their housing is, is private uh private sector uh, housing but they have um, they have maintained over the years a commitment to social housing um, and we had a commitment here in our country many years ago uh, which started to sort of uh, dissolve back in in the 1980s and but Finland is one of those countries that continued to invest and maintain their social housing so they have very low uh, numbers of people who are are unhoused um, as a result of, of having a good supply of that type of housing. So we look to that as a model that we could certainly be emulating here in Canada. All right, thank you so much for the update, Shana, because I know that this is a front row and center and has been for quite some time and does not seem to be going away anytime soon as well. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Shauna McKinnon, professor and chair at the Department of Urban and Inner City Studies at the University of Winnipeg. And she is back from another adventure. She loves traveling as well as loving love. And she is, oddly <laughs> enough, walking like a penguin these days. The travel lady is joining us to talk about her expedition to Antarctica. Good morning, Leslie Cater, the travel lady. Hi, Leslie. Hi, good morning, Sue. Thank you. I, wow. saw, I saw some of your videos. I saw some of your pictures. Tell us about the experience. Oh, my goodness me. It was way beyond my expectations. It is an incredible land, the white continent. It's, uh, it just defies description. I, it's so strange. You know, I'm so used to going to wild places where you'll have uh, a lot of um, animals on the ground. Here, it's, it's whales, it's penguins, it's birds, and no people. <laughs> I'm, I'm a little confused here, Les. Uh, is, is this Antarctica? Is this the first time you've been there? Like, you've been yes. everywhere. What? I know, I know, and, and Antarctica was kind of on my list. I had gone around the um, a whole of South America, so I'd gone down as far as Ushuaia, which is there just at Cape Horn, and that's where all the expedition ships depart to go across, across the Drake Passage. Now, no doubt you've heard about the Drake Passage, most notorious stretch of water in the world. <laughs> it, it can be, it can be up up and down um but you know these new ships now the seaborne ship i was on the stabilizers were fantastic and they cope with that very well and you know something it's it's an very active uh type of vacation if you like exploration i prefer to call it but i was uh, so pleased to see the num a number of much older people on the ship who were able to handle getting in and out of the zodiacs with ease and uh it was just a great mix of people really cool and i like i love an adventure trip that seems to be what people are really into these days and mm -hmm. and maybe this is the destination was there anything that surprised you that you kind of weren't expecting to see that you did experience well i really didn't think that the penguins would not take much notice of us they <laughs> they are such delightful creatures but i I spend the whole time laughing. They have got such characters, and um, they just get on their way. And if you're in their way, they walk around you. It's, <laughs> it was wow. really wonderful. And what I did, Sue, as well, I did some background reading before I went. I read the book um, about Shackleton's journey mm. called Endurance. And I think that gave me a real insight as to what this land can be when conditions are not favorable to you. So um, it was wonderful to be on an expedition where some of the expedition leaders had actually recreated that journey themselves about 10 years ago with no modern equipment just to see what Shackleton really went through. And you talk about serious business and, you know, maybe more so than the pages that we've read and some of the images, uh, because you were there and Sue's been kind of stalking you online <laughs> and uh, has a picture of the most fantastic, huge iceberg. It's kind of rectangular out of the, boy, it looked spectacular, the, the visuals. Oh, yes, it was just absolutely wonderful. Going out in the Zodiac, Zodiac as well and, and seeing these our guide didn't want to get too close to them. He says, you never know if they tip over. They
then they create uh, obviously a wave effect. But the most wonderful moment I had in the zodiacs going out then, our guide was a young chap from Tofino, actually. Oh, funny. And he said, um, let's just take one minute of silence so we can appreciate this beauty around us. And everybody went dead quiet and could just hear the popping of the ice. Oh, well, wonderful. Spectacular. Sounds like an absolutely amazing <laughs> adventure. Thank you so much for sharing with us. Appreciate it. Next time, take us with you if you would. That would be a better share. And happy Valentine's to you today. Happy Valentine's Day to you today, Leslie. Yes, happy Valentine's to you too. And everybody out there, all the lovers. Leslie Cater is the Travel Lady. You can find her online at thetravellady.ca.